how did we get from revolution to restrooms? How did we go from the founding era of birth of a nation and the birth of freedom to now we're debating over the key men of women's restrooms? And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Because there's some bigger issues at, at hand than what we're really uh, following. But I just want to give you a couple quick things just to, as food for thought this, as we start out. And then we'll go and dive into some scripture because it's everything points back to some foundational truths and that's really into all of our culture. But this, uh, this is whole presentation, we actually have a, an institute, we call it Institute for American Christian Citizenship. And we founded that as one of our projects to help teach uh, our, our immigrant pastors who come from all, all nations uh, on the foundational principles of what this nation's citizenship means and where it came from and that aren't in existence in any other nation. Why is that? What are the principles and so forth? So this is part of our, but I want to, let's go ahead and pass this next to the next slide. I uh, just want to give you a couple little snapshots of who would have thought that right now. How many times have you said to yourself in the last five years, who would have thought that? Right? Fill in the blank. Well, this is one of those who would have thought that. It's happening all over the country. There's an actual national website particularly dedicated to promoting this in local libraries all over the country. It's called Drag Queen Storytime, Drag Queen Children's Reading Hour. They're going in two to ten-year-old children in the reading hour in the library instead of reading about uh, George Washington or reading about all of the sorts of just things that they read to kids. We've all read to our kids. They have drag queens coming into doing their presentations and, as one did, um, shake his wares, describe themselves as bearded queens and all these kind of things in, in children's reading hours. And it's just going to and I, I it's important that we look at these things in context and so much of the time these things they slip through and they just happen because we're not saying anything we're not doing anything but how do we get to where that was even a possibility who would have, who'd have thought right and uh, go on to the next slide please we've got uh, so many of those things and pastor referenced our little issue in Houston we had a few years ago and Houston was just the latest at that moment in this also national growth of this particular movement, which is funded and, and uh, organized. This didn't just happen by a group called Human Rights Campaign, but this was our campaign website. This was the third phase of that battle extended over two years in Houston just to defeat a bad ordinance. So we finally, as Pastor said, when, when, when the ordinance was passed at city council, we gather signatures to put it on the ballot, as you can in some cities in Texas, to, to vote a referendum, which allows us to repeal that law or vote it down. We submitted the signatures. The city mayor, who was completely hostile to us, of course, struck down the signatures, just, just uh, uh, invalidated half of them. We were, it forced us to file a lawsuit against the city, and, which we did. And over that next year, we spent one year in court, two trips to the Texas Supreme Court, and God gave us the victory in in those and allowed us to get it back on the ballot and allowed to vote on it. And this was our, our phase of that, saying to vote no on this. And that, uh, but I will say this, that in, in, in the, there was the mayor of Houston who was behind all this, and this was the attorneys that uh, reached out and said, you know, we're going we're to see if we can scare these pastors or intimidate them. And that was my own personal subpoena. How many got one of those? <laughs> it was my first one. Uh, and it was an interesting snapshot of what God 
intended to use this whole thing for. What the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. Because little did I know, little did the enemy know, and these attorneys, who I'm still are, are kicking themselves over this thing, uh, this backfired on them in, in a bigger way than any one of us could have ever foreseen. I can't travel anywhere in America today uh, in, within the church realm and even without it, and frankly, even in the political circles where people don't know about the story about the pastor being I made it into God's Not Dead 2 and 3. And so, um, so the issue, it became, all of a sudden, but here's what it was. So here we have the situation where, and I think what I under, underestimated was the shock factor. That, that people looked at and go, wait a minute, this didn't really, they did what? A city government subpoenaed the sermons of pastors? It just, it was one of those flashpoints that occurred that erupted, and, and God did some incredible things, and I'll talk a little bit more on that. But I, but I want just, just to illustrate, you know, down at that bold type in the bottom, uh, you may not be able to read it, but it says, contempt, failure by any person, without adequate excuse to obey a subpoena served upon that person may be deemed in contempt of the court which the subpoena is issued or district court in the county in which the subpoena is served and may be punished by fine or confinement or both. Now, in layman's terms, that's fine or jail. And so we knew right out of the gate that that was what, that's how these things work. So... You either comply with the 17 different line items of, of information they were demanding, or there was the possibility that we could go to jail. We had a lot, unfortunately, we had a lot of hostile judges now in, in Harris County. We knew that uh, it wasn't a guarantee, but we knew one thing, that not a single one of the f- seven of us that were pastored, I mean, that were subpoenaed, uh, were, were even re- for a second tempted to yield to, the, to submitting any of that information. Uh, and by the way, I say seven because you see the two names at the top, there's actually several names, but F.N. Williams and Max Miller up there are two of our lead African-American pastors. They served as our plaintiffs in our lawsuit against the city, so they were our point guys. The five of us that were subpoenaed in addition to them that really caught all the attention of the world were because we were not parties to the lawsuit. And there's no legal basis to subpoena, just to reach out and send subpoenas to anybody that's in the, in, in the phone book. Okay, you can't do that. But that's essentially what they did. And, and so the, all that combined is that there were the seven pastors that were subpoenaed in this. And I just want to give you a little quick snapshot, just, to, just one thing that God did in all this as we, before we move on. The, when the Alliance Defending, Alliance Defending Freedom issued their, their motion to quash the subpoenas on our behalf, they sent out a national press release. And within 24 hours, my world turned upside down because the media caught up, and you all know what happened, but just our phone just blew up. So we were getting calls from BBC London, every major news outlet in America, and usually in, in Europe, in fact. So it was just incredible. But very quickly, I realized I needed to be able to, because the, the big question was, who are these five? So I wanted to be able to not have to repeat myself over and over again. I sat down and just drafted a very brief, narrow uh, bio of each of the five of us and said, okay, who's, who's these guys? And when I finished, it's just one of those moments where you sit back and, you, and just stand in awe and see what God had done. Because here's, here's, the, here's the Reader's Digest versions of these. Con Nguyen, the Vietnamese Baptist Church senior pastor who was subpoenaed. Con was one of the original Vietnamese boat pe- people that came from 
Vietnam to America when they, they, they escaped, watched most of their family die to come over here 30 years ago for freedom. And pastors all over the world, pastors in Asia, has a dynamic ministry uh, all over Asia and in the United States now. Uh, Magda Hermida, she and her husband, Jose, were, had escaped Castro's communist Cuba in the 1960s to come to America for freedom and have a, a huge ministry to Hispanics here and around the world. Hernan uh, uh, Castano, Dr. Hernan Castano, he was brought from Colombia as a child by his family to escape the communism and, and Colombia drug wars to come to America for freedom. Also has an international ministry reaching all over the world. Pa uh, Dr. Steve Riggle, senior pastor of Grace Community Church, of mega church of 16,000 in Houston, the president of Grace International, uh, or all have churches all over the world. He and his wife, Becky, as 20-something as pastors, were caught in the middle of a Philippine prison uprising and were shot and stabbed multiple times and should have died. There's no reason that they should have lived. Both of them still live the physical consequences of some of those wounds, but God healed them, raised them up, and launched them into an international scope of ministry themselves. And I sat there, and I wrote down just those four, and I thought, Lord, they just picked on the Avengers. <laughs> I mean, it's like the old song that's like, you know, you don't tug on Superman's cape, you know, and all those kind of things. Well, they didn't just tug on it. They just reach up and slap Superman, right? So, but I was just, I was in awe realizing, wow, look at the, look at the caliber on the background of these. And, of course, now the, four, the fifth, you know, you, you got to have, you got this, your super characters, and then you have to throw in kind of your average, every, everyday Joe that is kind of just the comical sidekick of the rest of the team. Well, that was my role, so. Uh, so I'm number five, and uh, I was kind of thinking, Lord, what's my story compared to all that, you know? And, uh, but then I, I realized that, you know, the average guy has a role, too. We don't, have to, we don't have to have superhero stories. God uses the least of the least, doesn't he? And I had just done some homework before this and found that my first direct lineage of Welch came over from England in 1689. Uh, with William Penn and George Fox to administer the Quaker Church in central Pennsylvania. And we've had, my Welches have then served ever, in, in the ground ever since uh, through the Revolutionary War all the way through to uh, my oldest son served two tours in Iraq. My youngest son is serving active duty. And I uh, realized that I was the connection to the roots of our nation. And what God has shown was uh, Vietnam, Colombia, South America, Cuba, God brought the world to, this is what the nation looks like today. This is what the church is supposed to look like today. And then all of a sudden, he just lifted it up and said, we had two blacks, two Hispanics, an Asian, and two Anglos. This was the team they picked on, of, of mighty men of valor who stood and preached the word of God boldly all over the world. And the enemy thought he was going to take them down. So I'm just setting that stage a little bit to let you know that the, the enemy seems to be raging, seems to be winning, and he will have his season, but there's, there's some good news in the midst of all this, isn't there? And that's what we're going to talk a little bit about. But in the midst of that, um, we can go ahead and take that down. Thank you. And uh, just close out the screen. So we're going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about today about how do we get here and where do we go from here? Because that's our part. And one of the things, just a really brief illustration. I, you know, how many of you have the misfortune of running track in high school? Like, like me. Okay, gotcha. So you remember those, those painful moments, right? Well, I ran it back in the days when they called it the 440. Not the four, we didn't use meters back then. That tells you how old I am, kids. Um, 
But I ran the 440, which made me automatically, unfortunately, a, a member also of the mile relay team. Right? You guys got to do that. So, so I got to run the mile relay and the 440. Well, and those, anybody who's ever run a relay race knows that you can, you can run a fantastic leg, they call it, right? So your leg is one or two or three or four. You all saved your fastest guy for the, the, the last leg, right? Uh, but you can have the fastest guys on the track in all four legs and still lose the race. How do you do that? Remember? You dropped the baton, right? That handoff is so critical because when you're running full speed, you got to reach out and hand that to the guy, and he has to know right when to put his hand back and when to take off, right? If he takes off too fast, <laughs> you know, you're going to miss him. If he takes off too slow, you run into him, you both fall down, and you lose. I mean, so it's got to be just right, that handoff, but you have to still run a good leg, right? And everybody has to do their part, and that's where we are. And where we are starting from is not, not what our founders did, not what our fathers did, but where we are today. So we're going to start with, let's go to John 8, 31 through 36, and we're just going to read a couple passages here as our baseline for answering this question, because there's, there's one thing that's, that's real clear today. The founding fathers gave us was a gift of freedom. And that freedom is not free. That freedom has never been free. And that freedom comes with a price to every generation. So in John 8, 31 through 36, it says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So the context there obviously is the, 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 the distinction between depending on the law and depending on the, the atonement and the finished work of Christ on the cross to give us our final freedom because that son will be in the house forever. Our founding fathers use, reference these verses repeatedly. In particular, and and then especially in the next passage in Galatians five, we talk about this concept of freedom. Is it possible for a people to be politically free if they're spiritually in bondage? Can those two really go together? If you're slaves to sin, can you be free, or will you retain freedom as a people, as a nation, in the temporal realm? Well, our founding fathers understood that that is impossible because the sin that, that, that then consumes us, what does sin do? Well, further down in Galatians 5, in fact, which we won't go into, there's these two little lists, right, called the fruits of the spirit, fruits of the flesh, right? So if you're a slave to sin and the people are a slave to sin, and then the, what's, the, what's the fruit of the nation is fruits of the flesh, and you can run then that laundry list of all the carnage. Guess what? Tragically, it frankly looks a lot like America today. So the reason we're, we're going to talk about freedom in both contexts here, but we have to start with the single most important freedom that exists, and that's freedom through Jesus Christ from the bondage of sin and slavery. And then verse 1 in Galatians 5, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. And then down in verse 13 and 14, he said, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And we're familiar with the great, two greatest commandments when Jesus was asked. Right? Love your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is pointing to this one on the, on the horizontal level of saying all, all the law points to this one thing. But don't, don't subject to what they were obviously attempting to do at that time in much of the church was to force those believers that were coming to Christ that were outside the framework of, of Judaism to, to submit themselves to the law, including circumcision and other things. And they said, no, you don't need to go there. But our founding fathers also used this passage and said, look, we, have, we are a free people. And we are now being enslaved by this rogue king. And we're not going to submit ourselves to a yoke of slavery. And it was one of their foundational passages that they used. And, and of course, one of the critical foundational groups at the time, in fact, the spark of our entire base of freedom, was the first great awakening that occurred in the early 1700s. And all the founding fathers attribute the, the spiritual renewal and moral renewal that occurred in that first half of the century to set the tone and the stage for the, the political independence and freedom that we gained at the second half. Of the, that without the first, there would have been no second. So what does that mean? That means if there's no spiritual renewal and awakening in the people through Jesus Christ and that renewal bearing fruit in our lives, then the, the hope that we have to, to remain free from tyranny in, in a political sense is just a pipe dream. So the truth is what they were saying was that the American Revolution was not an act of rebellion, as some might say. It was an act of restoration. Their cry became, no king but King Jesus. And they pointed back to the ancient tribes of Israel. They pointed back to the, the days of the previous centuries where from 1 Samuel 8, we all know the story, remember when the people cried out to, to, God, to God and said, we want a king. And they're telling Sam, they're complaining to Samuel who, by the way, had, all, had kind of retired. He was, he was off on the shores of the Mediterranean, kind of kicking back, and had turned his, turned his uh, prophetic role over to his sons. And then so often, it's kind of like the Kennedy syndrome. Didn't work, well, didn't work anywhere in generation, generation there. But, but unfortunately, the sons weren't doing so well. They were lazy, they were selfish, and they were abusing their position. And so the, the people came back to Samuel and said, we, we want a king like everyone else around us. So in 1 Samuel 8, what happens? Samuel goes to God, and he says, here's what the people are demanding. And God says, it's okay. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They're not saying we don't want a prophet anymore. They're saying we don't want to govern directly with God. We want a king to take care of us. We want a nanny state. So God said, give them what they want. Tell them it's okay. Here's what it, but then tell them what comes along with the package deal. So, here come, so he gives them the list. And just for your entertainment, I'd urge you to read that list in 1 Samuel 8. Because it sounds an awful lot like federal government USA 2019. They'll take your sons and your daughters, take your, your lands, tax your goods. You run down the list. Essentially, you lose your freedom, you lose your, your, your goods, your property, and, and your, the fruits of your labors. So all that to say so from that point until the Magna Carta signed in 1215 A.D., self-government was gone, largely on earth.
But then God brought about the beginning of that restoration at that point. So here we are in now fast forwarding to 1776, the founding era, where they're saying and then declaring themselves, the, the final closing words of that declaration, that they were willing to lay down their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to restore this. So what happens? How does this work? What did they have to do? Well, there was a great, obviously great sacrifice, and the fact of the matter is they did. Many of them laid down their lives. Almost all of them laid down their fortunes, and they, all of them sacrificed their sacred honor on that day, from the, at least from the temporal standpoint. They became treasonists. By signing that document, they put a big crosshairs right on their chest for the king and saying, we are now the enemies of the, large, of the most powerful government on earth, and the penalty for that was hanging, right? Now, how many of us would be willing to do that today? Okay. Well, fortunately, we had some powerful men at that day, most of which, and many of the most powerful and strongest were pastors. Um, one of the, the leaders was John Witherspoon, who, you know, as, as uh, and there's a laundry list of presidents, vice presidents, statesmen, congressmen, senators, <coughs> excuse me, other leaders who were protégés of John Witherspoon that he birthed both as a pastor as well as the leader of College in New Jersey. But he said, while we give praise to God, the supreme disposer of all events, for his inner position on our behalf, let us guard against the dangerous error of trusting in or boasting of an arm of flesh. If your cause is just, if your principles are pure, and if your conduct is prudent, you need not fear the multitude of opposing hosts. What follows from this? That he is the best friend to American liberty, who is most sincere and active, in promoting true and undefiled religion, and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Whoever is an about enemy of God, I scruple not to call him an enemy of his country. Right? And so we have Moses Mathers, who was, was explaining this whole time period. And this is important to us to understand today, because we've been told the church doesn't belong out there, right? Keep your Bible out of politics. Keep your Bible out of City Hall. Keep your faith in Jesus Christ uh, to the walls of the church. Uh, leave this, the rest, leave this to, to us. We'll take care of it. How's that working so far? Right? So from the corporate halls of commerce to the city hall to the school boards to the classrooms to media to entertainment, we, we, we yielded all that to the enemy. What does the enemy come to do? Steal, kill, destroy, right? So why are we so surprised when he does it so well? So here's, here's our challenge. These pastors explained why it is that we have a critical role as followers of Christ in this process. And one of the things that, uh, that we, we look to during that whole era, the multitude of sermons that were done by the pastors uh, the, and uh, the colonial ministers of actually entire books, of those that are given during that whole era. One of, one of the great ones is called Concerning Unlimited Submission to Higher Authorities by John, Pastor Jonathan Mayhew in 1747. Even at that time, laying the framework for this argument that, well, that's government. Romans 13 says God ordains all government, and therefore we just need to submit. We're the subjects. Right? But when we look at the whole of Scripture, and we need to look at the whole of Scripture, right? Because anybody can find 
scriptures to make their case on almost anything, right? Here the old story that you know, somebody, you know, closed their eyes, point down, said, you know, then Judas hanged himself. And then he opens it up and flips it over and says, points it out and says, and what thou doest, do quickly, right? You can do any, find any case by misusing scripture, and we hear this all the time. And I can give you legions of examples, even in the Texas State Legislature, where we've had leaders in other places and other bodies blatantly misquote scripture for their own political ends. So it's important that we look at all of Scripture. And there's one thing that becomes clear from this, in this book from cover to cover, and that's that God is sovereign over all things. Right? You don't learn a whole lot more, we, and we need to learn a lot more. But one thing is, is in the beginning, if the five, first five words aren't true, then the rest of it is suspect. Right? In the beginning, God created. And what that means is every molecule in the universe is under his authority. It's under his so. What that ultimately means then is we can trust this. This is his written, in, inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And that is the foundation of, and the book upon which all of our founding fathers turned to. You know, over 75% of the direct and indirect references and writings of our founding fathers during that era were either script, direct scripture, scripture references by other writers like Locke and Montesquieu and Blackstone, and, and other, other references of principles out of Scripture. So this is our founding. If these are the founding principles upon which our former government was created and rests upon, then taking the people who understand and live by this book out of the process, how does that, what does that lead to? Right? It, it, it leads to collapse of the institution. And so if that's where our challenge is today. Do you know only 9%, according to the studies, of, of those who call themselves Christians have a biblical worldview. And when we say that means a biblical world, that means we look down issues and it matches scripture. And look at today, things like same-sex marriage. Okay? The, the younger the individual, we talk a lot about the millennials these days, but it's very little different in the church. Increasingly accepting of what we know to be immoral, ungodly, unbiblical lifestyles and choices and things like socialism, and things of that nature. How do we get here? How do we, how do we reach this point? And so what the, the first thing is the enemy seizes the institutions of knowledge. That we, when First of all, we turn the pulpits away from teaching things that are relevant to the day, as, as they did back then. And when, when a recent study showed that 90% of Protestant pastors believe that Scripture speaks to the issues of our day. I mean, all, from national defense to immigration, that Scripture has something to say about all those. We'd all agree with that, wouldn't we? Scripture has something to say about everything. But 90% of that 90% never teach on any of those issues. Okay, so what we have is a people across our nation that are sitting in churches that when we're engaging with our coworkers at, at work or when we're dis- discussing things over the water cooler or when we have to go vote or when we're interchanging ideas on Facebook, we don't really know how to defend these issues biblically very often. We give our opinion, but something we've learned over and over again, when you go out and it's your opinion against their opinion, usually their opinion is going to win. You know why? Because that angel of light factor kicks in, right? Oh, it just sounds so much more warm and fuzzy. We've got to we'll embrace and tolerate and accept and, and love even, but, but the world's love is not like this love, is it? And so our, our question is, what are we going to do? What are we going to do going forward? Well, we have to just do what they did. Our, 
our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. You know, I'll, well, there's a couple things here. So, you know, one of the things that we have to look back and stand to say, look, do I deserve? What have I done? I mean, honestly, okay, what price have I paid for the freedom I'm blessed with every single day? Right now, the numbers are just under 1.4 million by the Defense Department of those that have actually died in service to our country, both in combat and non-combat roles in the military since our founding, since the founding, the very beginning of our uh, country, the War for Independence. One point, right about 1.4 million. Obviously, hundreds of thousands of others, and millions of millions of others that have served, and others that have that have been wounded, scarred, and sacrificed and suffered. So that's. That's just even a fragment of that. But those that have died, and we saw a picture as we were going through the, I think it was that in, also in that, uh, uh, what's it called, wagons. Uh, there's a store downtown here off the square. Love that place. There was, but one of the pictures they had in there was of a boy and his dad in a, in a Marine uniform standing at the wall, and his, the boy reaching out, touching the wall, pointing to a name, and behind the reflection in his original Vietnam jungle combat was his grandpa as a young man and said the grandson he never met. Right? And it's just, boy, it was powerful. Because he didn't just die for our freedom. He gave his future. That his son gave up his dad to be a granddad. Okay, we think about multiplying all that. That price that has been paid for our freedom. What are, what are we willing to do? So the first thing it is, is deciding that, you know, whatever's required of me, I've got to do more. I've got to just do a little bit more. I'll, I'll never forget the, the when I walked out of the federal building in downtown Houston in spring of 2002. And when I walked in, I had this young man about that much taller than me walking alongside me. And I watched that young man take, lift his hand take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and our country, and I left him there. I walked out without him. Fortunately, God brought him home to us after two tours in Iraq and a lot of combat, but he's carried the scars of war ever since. But I, I walked out that building, and I walked on that sidewalk, and I got about six steps, and I stopped because something just struck me like a lightning bolt. And I just thought, what am I willing to give my son's life for? Because I just did. Right? I had no idea whether he, he was going to be able to come back to us. Now, we were at war. This was June of 2002. Remember what happened in 9-11? So here we were now, and... And uh, I, had, I really didn't know. But I just thought, what is worth that? Because it better be good. But we've been willing to send our sons and our daughters and now and our husbands and our fathers and our, and our wives now off to war for our freedom. So what's our part? Because there's two ways to defend freedom. And that's as, as the proverbial saying goes, with the ballot or the bullet. So we're having, we're, we've done it with the bullet. We're doing it right now with the bullet. We have those that are out there in harm's way to defend our freedom. What's our part? Well, our part is making sure that the government vested with authority to take our life, our property, or our freedom and rightfully justified. It's given that authority by God. In Romans 13, it says to protect the innocent and to punish the evildoer, right? 
we're now the carriers of that authority. And so the fact is that when we get down to the bottom line of where we are, our choice is to choose slavery, to sin. And if we choose Jesus Christ and we now belong to him, then we are now his agents of freedom for the rest of the world to see. The first question is, do they see Jesus in us, right? Because if, if it just comes out of our mouth on Sunday and then we go home on Monday and we live like everybody else, then the rest of the world goes, okay, and that's what's happening today. All over America, in fact, right here in Texas, is the respect and reverence for the church, let alone for God, is at an all-time low. And it's bearing out in lots of things. In fact, we're getting ready to sue the city of Magnolia, our little hometown, the pastor's council, and all the churches in the city. We're having to sue the city. Now, why would you want to do that? In fact, there are some who would say, well, you shouldn't do that. Boy, you know, we're going to upset people at you. Well, here's what happened. In this little tiny little Texas town, where, by the way, just to make one point clear, Democrats don't even run for office. This is, this is solid red areas they come. It's, I mean, literally, Democrats don't file for office. So just to make sure this isn't a partisan question or issue, we were sitting there last spring, the, the pastors got together, we get together once a month, and everybody said, hey, my water bill tripled last month at the church. And, of course, my antennas went up, and I'm thinking, what in the world? Because everybody, it wasn't just one, one person, everybody's water bills tripled. So we'll dig and find out, guess what happened? The city had decided that they needed to improve water infrastructure, sewer rate, all that stuff, which is fine. But they changed their water rate structure, and this is over a whole long process. But bottom line is they decided we can't get enough money if we just triple the businesses. And we can't, we're not going to raise the individual rates because people can vote and they'll get mad at us. And so, so they realized the only way to reach their revenue goal was to take the churches and the schools and the nonprofits out of the commercial rate category create a brand new rate called institutional and charge the churches 40 to 70% more than the businesses. And expressly said in the paper publicly, that well, the churches are tax exempt and we got to get this money somewhere else. It's basically, they said clearly publicly that we're offsetting the tax exemption afforded to the churches by charging them that much excessively on their water and sewer rates. Now, underlying here is what? Here's what the, the city administrator of Magnolia said, which was an exact quote from the, the mayor of Houston. So, so here's this, you know, two different people, two different time periods, two different issues saying exactly the same thing. The church just needs to pay its fair share. Well, what does that mean? That means, well, the businesses pay their water bills. They pay their property taxes. Why are you getting a tax exemption? You're just like everybody else. Right? I mean, let's be, let's be real. What we see is that a complete absence of reverence and respect for what the Church of Jesus Christ actually does every day. Look, let's face it. And we challenged them back, of course. We said, okay, we're going to shut down the churches for a week. Okay, so city, no more all the food, clothing, shelter, mentoring, after-school programs, all the stuff we do every day, we're just going to hand it over to you for a week. You get to pay for it. You get to fund it. Guess what? We all know what would happen. The city would go belly up in a week. Okay, but the truth of the matter is, though, what, what we're seeing now is this, they see the church as a social service institution. They don't see a lot of that visibly, and therefore, because the church isn't any longer seen as a spiritual 
dynamic of the, of the communities increasingly, then, then they're going, well, hey, you're just like everybody else. So here's our, our final our call right now, folks. I'm just, I'm, I'm on a tear because who'd have thought, right? Who'd have thought that right here in Texas, right here in our own communities, is we're having this, this ominous move toward telling our children, you're, you're, you, know, you don't have to decide what gender you are until you really know what gender you are. We're not going to put it on birth certificates anymore. You, it's a... So when you choose your gender, and by the way, it could be any one of these 31, you know, it's, it's called the Baskin-Robbins of gender. So the New York City, you know, gender identity card that has 31 official genders on it, and you can go look it up, the, the New York City gender identity card has 31 official gen- genders. We're telling our children there is no God, right? No, see, this book's a lie. Okay? Just saying, oh, it's not, it's, it says in the beginning he made them male and female. That's not true. Okay? You can be whatever you want to be. You're just an animal. You're an amoeba. Okay? That means this God doesn't exist. His word's not true. And just choose your own. Now, once you've established that as your baseline, folks, where do our kids go from there? So our choice here is real simple. Is first of all, personally, individually, receive, confess, or recommit our life to Jesus Christ. Because none of us can do this on our own. Our best efforts will fail if we're not in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, and you haven't received him as your personal Savior, confessed him as Lord, and dedicated your life to him, and let him purchase you from the bonds of slavery, then that's, that's step number one. Because I'll, I'll promise you, because that's my life up until the age of 19, that there's nowhere but destruction to go from there. First step is, if you're, if you're a follower of Christ... We got to dig in deeper. We got to recommit, reassess, review, and say, Lord, whatever time I've got left on this earth, and some of us have a whole lot less than we started with in this walk, but whatever's left, whether it's tomorrow, that's our time to go home, or whether it's 20 years, 30 years, doesn't matter. Whatever's left, Lord, take me and take all of it. How do I do more? Second thing is making sure part of that is, is managing our home. We got to take our home, and if we got kids at home, We've got to make sure we dig in deeper and raise them up and teach them and equip them and fire them up so with their personal faith, not our faith, their faith, we send them out. And it's got to be our base camp from going out and engaging the culture. And finally, let's engage in our duties as citizens. Because what we need to know is this, folks, that the, the sword of civil authority that was taken away from the people of Israel that they gave to the king that went, was a pipeline directly between the people and God. They were able to govern themselves. It was called about one word, and that one word is authority. Remember, Jesus said, Pilate, remember, you have no authority over me except that which I'm giving you from heaven, all that. Right? Jesus said, Father, I think you've given me all authority in John 17. Great commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. That authority from God himself rests in our hands. We loan his authority to somebody every election. We give it to somebody else. We do it by either not showing up, and we give it to the enemy. And you're not part of the problem. And I'm just going to be not, I'm not nice about this at all. I'm not really not. Because when we don't show up, we give, God, we give that lethal power to the enemy to steal, kill, and destroy. He's taking it from those of us who are doing it, okay? who are trying our best to do our part. So there's no excuses on that one. Everybody votes, and everybody votes biblically. Anything less is an abject violation 
and, and uh, of the word of the word of God and the spirit and the blood of the patriots. So, and number two is, folks, then we have to engage. We have to speak truth. We have to be grounded and learn and be out on the front lines of our culture. The lie always loses to the truth. Always loses to the truth, right? And so we do. We present the truth in love, and we do it with the power of God and the spirit of the Lord behind us. Guess what? I am absolutely hopeful and confident. There are some of those that are bemoaning, or it's easy to get disappointed, it's easy to get frustrated, it's easy to get almost despondent when you look around. Read the headlines, just don't read the headlines. Don't watch the news, you know, uh, I, I, just gather what you have to do to know it. But here's this, this tells us one thing, and as closing I'll say this, pastors, we tell pastors all over the country when they ask, how did you guys win? I'm sorry, you're asking if we won? We didn't win. He did, right? This word says, this word says victory, or says the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory is of the Lord. We don't have to carry the weights of the, of the results. We don't have to worry about the outcome. All we have to do is do what? Be faithful. If we just do what we can, where we can with what we have, and we do it under the power of a sovereign, living, loving God, working behind us and through us, we're his instruments. There's nothing that can stop us, nothing to stop his church of redeeming this nation today where it's headed and turning it around. Thank you. God bless you. Pastor.